through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI Radio listener. Yes, Joey Watson here. You are listening to this show, Out of the Box. Thank you for doing that. For those playing along for the first time from every Thursday from midday to one, I get to sit down with one person and talk through the stories from their life and the records which have defined them. Today's guest has been a labourer, a taxi driver, a car mechanic, a music video director, a hippie, a squatter, a doctor, an aspirant politician, and an attempted astronaut. But to you and I, Dr. Karl Krasinitsky is Australia's foremost science communicator. He has dedicated his later career to making science popular, a scholar of biochemistry, physics, and a doctor of medicine, the author of a very recently published book, Vital Science, perhaps the latest of millions. And to my great fortune, Dr. Carl, a warm welcome to this show. Oh, shucks, Dr. Joe, what a wonderful intro. Thank you. The Box. Dr. Carl, so I, I know many listeners um, will be familiar with your segment on the Triple J Morning Show. The format is uh, punters call in and ask you a never-before-heard science question. Now I've got you all to myself. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd, uh, I'd pitch one of my own. Lay it on me. Right now, we're talking into a pair of microphones, which is being transmitted to radios around Sydney in almost real time. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a miracle to me. Is it? Um, for me, it depends on your definition of the word miracle. For me, the word miracle means that the heavens open. Uh, there's a vaguely, usually a green phosphorus and glow of some sort, and then something happens that disobeys the laws of physics. Um, normally, I haven't run across one of those. I've heard it a lot, uh, especially in, in intensive care units, when people say, "Oh, it's a miracle that our baby survived." No, it's about $40,000 a day plus lots of very clever people working really long hours working on top of two centuries of accumulated knowledge. Okay, so let's put miracle aside. What's going on? What's going on? Um, We think just recently that we might have got ourselves the first um, uh, signal from a black hole eating a neutron star. Is that what you meant by what's going on, or you meant a different what's going on? I'm talking about the what's going on in this studio right now. Oh, here you today. didn't mention that. Right. I, okay. I thought not? you were just asking a universal what's going on. Isn't that amazing, though? So we've picked up black holes running into black holes and neutron stars running into neutron stars when, in the act of collision, they created a mount of gold roughly somewhere between 10 and 10,000 times the mass of the Earth. And now we've just seen, we think, a black hole eating a neutron star. But anyway, getting back to the radio. What, let's go with the black hole. What, yeah, okay. What's the significance of that? Okay, um, question without notes for you. Did you know that um, Australia invented Wi-Fi? I, I, did, I was familiar. This is a CSIRO Yeah, invention. and they did yep. it because of Stephen Hawking and black holes. Tell me about that. So Stephen Hawking said, um, look, there's these black holes. Sure, Einstein sort of talked about them. Uh, and then he said, well, there's tiny one. Ti- oh, not not tiny. <laughs> Big mistake on my part. I'm sure you would have picked me up on it because, as I'll, you know. I'll forgive, as would the listener. Yeah, because, as you know, black holes have no size. Black holes have no size. Take me through that. Well, you've got various properties. You personally, you have volume. So if you go to a bathtub full of water filled almost over brimming and you start putting in your toe and then your foot and your leg then water overflows you've got volume and you've got mass and you've got length and breadth and height and you've got acoustic properties so you absorb a certain amount of sound you've got optical properties light lands on you some's absorbed some's emitted um you do not have the property of being world heavyweight boxing champion 
black holes have only three properties. They have mass and spin and charge. Size is not one of their properties. They have no size. They're just a point in space. They have no size. The event horizon has size around them, but the black hole itself has no size. And, I, and I'm glad you picked me up on it. I said if you went for a small black hole, or <laughs> they're all the same size, mate, which is zero. So if you have a very low-mass black hole, according to Stephen Hawking, it will evaporate. And this was his theory. And he also said that if it evaporates, it will give off radio waves of a certain frequency, but they'd be buried down in a noise. They'd be very quiet compared to the noise of the universe. Scientists went looking in 1972 in Australia. John O'Sullivan went looking and couldn't find it because he thought of the noise. So he invented a new combination of hardware and software and fast Fourier transforms that nobody had ever done before, and then went looking again, couldn't find them. But that hardware and software turned out to be essential for picking up the very weak signals from Wi-Fi. And as a result, CSIRO earned one billion dollars in royalties and then we fired one quarter of all the scientists at CSIRO. And there we have the commencement of this episode of Out of the Box. Dr. Carl, what did your father do to help Jews escape the Holocaust during the Second World War? Uh, he helped smuggle them out of Warsaw. So he was one of, he was a person smuggler and he got busted uh, for it by his girlfriend who was a medical doctor. And the way it happened was that he was at the he escaped from a Russian concentration camp and he'd escaped from uh, Russian death sentences twice. Once by um, just running when they weren't looking at him. That's always a good thing to do, by the way. Uh, if they're grabbing you and they look the other way, run. So he did that. And then he ran all the way from one side of Europe to the other and then got busted trying to get into Sweden via Lithuania and then went into a Russian concentration camp. But luckily the Germans declared war, or the Nazis declared war on Russia and accidentally blew up the concentration camp that he was in and he managed to escape again. Ended up in Warsaw, was smuggling Jews out and then went to the theatre one night with his girlfriend and uh, she went off to do something else and she left a handbag behind and he suddenly had a sneeze. So he went diving into a handbag to grab a handkerchief and and in there was a document saying that she was an honorary German citizen. She had collaborated with the Nazis. She'd gone over to the Nazi side. They went home. Uh, he was staying in her flat. Um, they had a big argument. She left uncommonly early the next morning. And about 20 minutes later, the Gestapo came and threw him into the first of a series of German concentration camps. How did he survive concentration camps? Tin of sardines. Um, he managed to hang on to a tin of sardines and he used that to swap his identity for a uh, Russian soldier who died of appendicitis via the camp doctor who was an intellectual and with whom he used to play chess. And this is how he escaped towards the end of the war? He escaped by having taken on the identity of a person who was already dead. So they came to this body and they said, is this Ludwig Kuchelinski? Yeah, well, he's dead. We don't have to kill him. Because he was involved with um, at another concentration camp picking up uh, the dead Jews after they'd been gassed to death and carrying them on his shoulders to the elevator where they'd be taken into the ovens to be burnt. Um, and that, that, he got a bit depressed by that. He thought it was a no-end job. Mm. Was your mother Jewish, Carl? Ah, yeah, I found out only afterwards. I didn't know at the time. She lied to me. So first she, she told me that she was Swedish uh, and Lutheran. Uh, which is a different religion. Uh, and then later she turned into she was Polish and not Jewish, and then finally she admitted she was Jewish. She just went through terrible things in the concentration camps, and her way with dealing with it was just to deny it ever happened and make up a new identity. So how did your parents meet? 
Um, in Sweden after the war when my father was teaching English because he could speak 12 languages and she was his student and then they met and then had me and then um, we were all looking forward to a nice happy living in Sweden when uh, Russia started making grumbling noise at Finland and um, my father had already been in too many Russian concentration camps, apparently one is too many, and so decided to emigrate to America um, on the dock with all their possessions in a cardboard suitcase, uh, and me, and then, uh, not in a cardboard suitcase, and then I chucked a fever because I was having a reaction to the smallpox vaccination, detour here, get vaccinated, get vaccinated, get vaccinated. Um, the ship went away, my fever went away, the next ship was going to Australia, which is how come I end up going to Australia with my parents and living in a refugee camp here. Dr. Carl, what can we play at the top of this program in, in tribute to quite a whirlwind trip uh, Well, um, in this country? There's one particular song that I love to pieces, Born Under a Bad Sign. And I partially believe that where you end up is a mixture of what you do and bad luck and your genetics and what you do. So Born Under a Bad Sign is my favourite song for this. I've been down since I began to crawl Oh, if it wasn't for bad luck I wouldn't have no luck at all Hard luck and trouble My only friend I've been on my own Since I was ten Born under a bad sign I've been down since I began to crawl Oh, if it wasn't for real bad luck I wouldn't have no luck at all I can't read Didn't learn how to write My whole life has been one big fight Born under a bad sign I've been down since I began to crawl Oh, if it wasn't a real bad luck I wouldn't have no luck at all Big-legged woman's gonna carry me to my grave Born under a bad sign I've been down since I began to crawl Oh, if it wasn't for real bad luck I wouldn't have no luck at all
That's soul music on FBI Radio, Born Under a Bad Sign by William Bell. That was brought into FBI Radio today and out of the box by Dr. Carl, his book, Vital Science, recently out. He is my guest today. Dr. Carl, where were your parents and you as just a two-year-old placed on arrival in Australia? Uh, we went to a refugee camp on the border of New South Wales and Victoria, a place called Bonnie Giller, uh, just outside of Albury, and then bounced around. My father put in um, pipelines in South Australia, and then my mother and I, we moved to Sydney and then rapidly down to Wollongong, and so I spent a lot of time in Wollongong and basically went to um, primary school and high school and University in Wollongong, or the Gong, as we call it. Where did your father work? Bunch of jobs. Um, he had a master's degree in law, which was very impressive back then, and had been a journalist and had written the script for the first Three Musketeers movie in Hollywood on his travels. But um, best job he could get in Australia with all of his education was a labourer on the waterboard, which he did. Can Can you tell me about the, the time a guard from a concentration camp that your father had been in came and visited him at work? My father worked as a labourer, then worked his way up uh, to being in hiring and firing, simply because he could speak 12 languages. And there were lots of people with many different languages. And my father, one day, had this man come in whom he immediately, immediately recognised. He was his guard at Sachsenhausen, the last concentration camp he was in, just outside of Berlin. And he was a particularly brutal guard and had killed a few people, a few of my father's friends in front of my father, as well as in winter, uh, one day one of the prisoners didn't want to do his exercise and the guard said, no, just, just do nothing, just let him stay there. And, and they tried to make him walk and he said, no, no, just leave me here. My father tried to make him walk. And just for fun, they just the guards just watched him freeze to death overnight. And so this guard turned up and my father immediately recognised him. He was here under a fake name and then took him through the whole process and then got him all lined up and said, yeah, you got the job. You can um, uh, say so you got a job if you want on Monday. And then he said, by the way, and then he mentioned his rank and his proper name. He said, uh, you're my guard at Sachsenhausen concentration camp. He spoke in German, not in English. And the guy's face just went white and he just sat down in shock. And then he said after a minute, he said, what are you going to do? He said, nothing. You've got the job. He said, and he, said, he couldn't understand. He said, why? And he said, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for your children. In other words, to break the cycle of hate. And so I never knew about it until um, very late, until this man died, because my father promised he'd never tell anybody. It was just their secret. And in fact, I ended up catching a bus in, in primary school to this guy's house, this guy who'd murdered several of my father's friends, taking a bus and playing with his son and then uh, coming back again. And, I, and his son ended up um, studying and doing electrical engineering and becoming a boss of a big company and all sorts of things, which wouldn't have happened if his dad had been in jail. So it was a happy ending. How did you go at school? Um, moderately well. Um, like all refugees, I studied hard. There's a wonderful document by the United States government, which in 700 pages covers two centuries of refugees coming into America. And basically, the first generation work really hard. They and their kids work really hard, do all the crap jobs. And um, if you look at American Nobel Prizes, uh, refugees make up 2% of the population. Oh, sorry, recent immigrants make up 2% of the population, get 30% of the Nobel Prizes. So I, fi I fitted exactly <laughs> to that clear. And, and studied hard because I was being bullied at school, so there's no point in trying to have friends because they didn't like me anyway. Was science already the uh, area of choice? 
there wasn't a choice. It was um, the least bad out of a bunch of choices, and, and it was fun. It was nice. It had its own purity um, in English and in French, and there, there was always a degree of ambiguity. People could say, oh, this is a great book, and somebody else would say, oh, no, this is a terrible book, and there's no absolute standard. You follow the vibe of the time and the arguments of the time, which might be turned over by different arguments later. But in science, if water is made of two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen, that's the way it is till the end of the universe. And I, I, I like that certainty. I like the way that you could solve problems as well. Yeah. And on that, some more music. What can we blast into the airwaves now? Well, blasting's the right word. So Wollongong, I came across, my mother had a record shop there out of Warawong, La Paloma, and there was all this music and there was this, um, the, the, the vibe was just so wild, all this electric music. And to summarise all of that into one song, let me go with Highway 61 Revisited But Not by Bob Dylan, but by Johnny Winter, uh, an albino Texan who hits it with the most glorious screaming guitar riff you've ever heard.
said, is much too white. He said, hmm, come here, step into the light. He said, yes, you're right. I want to tell a second mother this has been done. But then the second mother was with the seventh side, and they were both out on Highway 61. Johnny Winter there covering Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited. Some would say the best version of the song. Others uh, certainly wouldn't. But uh, we'll give it to our guest on Out of the Box today. It is uh, science communicator Dr. Carl. Dr. Carl, how did your Bachelor of Science fall into a taxi driving job for you in the 1970s? Well, I realized that uh, I was unbalanced as a uh, human being. I kind of knew how the universe began and understood a lot of physics and chemistry, but I couldn't fix the handbrake on my car. And I didn't know people. And I didn't have any money. So I could fix all of those by becoming a taxi driver and then later a car mechanic. How did you fare as a taxi driver? I was great. Mate, I was, you, what, what you see is what you get. When, as soon as the passenger came in, I'd say, g'day, where do you want to go? And I'd say, you want to go there the quick way or the relaxed way? How much of a hurry are you in? And if they wanted to be there in a hurry, I'd scream up and down the back streets and get them there really quickly. If they wanted to be more relaxed, I'd do that. Um, what you see is what you get. It was easy. I love, I love taxi driving, especially I like the fact that uh, they were in the back seat and I was a bit shy at that time. Mm. Were you chatty? Uh, Did you make an effort? Well, I made a lot of an effort because they they had psychologically come into my living room, into my house, and I could, didn't have to make eye contact. Mm. And so I'd listen to them talking in the back seat among themselves if there was more than one. Nowadays, we have people who talk to themselves and they're not mad. They're on the phone. Yeah, I know. Crazy world. Um, and I'd say, you know, the way you guys are talking, I really don't think that you belong together. I think you should split up. And there'd be an awkward pause. And then one of them would say, yes, I've been meaning to tell you. So I got the vibe of being able to pick that up. 
Perhaps I should have added uh, marriage counseling to <laughs> your, your introduction today. There was one job uh, you picked up out on the Hume Highway near, near Liverpool that you would never forget. Oh, that was terrible. Tell me that. So I had a night. This was a great job. All, all the way from King's Cross out to Liverpool, uh, out to Campbelltown. Oh, man, that was a lot of money. And then I was coming back empty, of course, listening on the radio. Um, had the window down, um, but nothing was coming through on the radio. It was, I think it was a Tuesday night, and suddenly I heard this taxi somewhere, so I just you know, jammed, over the, jammed on the brakes and pulled over to the side of the road. Now, the reason I could do that was because I had uh, what the airline pilots called situational awareness. So whenever I'm driving a car, I know who's in front of me and behind me and beside me in the blind spots, whereas most people don't bother having that skill anymore. So I knew I could just jam on the brakes and pull over at the same time just checking nobody had snuck into my blind spot and I couldn't see anybody. And then I heard the, uh, a scream and then there's a group of people are way over on the left in an empty lot and they, on, this is on the Hume Highway and um, a person broke away and came running towards me and I thought, oh, interesting. Um, and then another person started uh, chasing this person and this person got the car and opened the front door and said, Drive! I said, where to? They said, drive. So I started driving because I knew that something was happening bad. But as I did, the second person caught up to the, uh, the woman in the front seat, caught up to the car and tried to open um, the door and succeeded. Uh, but I was already moving. So this is all happening in fast. Like I, I, I was already moving when they opened the door and then they tripped um, and then they grabbed the B pillar. That's the one between the front and back seats. You call it the B pillar. The A-pillar is the one next to the windscreen, by the way. Uh, and then, because I was accelerating and everything was happening really fast and I was trying to get to the traffic because you were screaming, um, the door slammed shut on his fingers. So now I'm uh, in the stream of traffic doing about 15 k's. She's screaming, he's screaming, and the door's shut on his fingers. And part of me's thinking, what if his legs go under the car and get caught under the back wheel and then that spins him around and he rips up his fingers? That's a bad thing. So there were too many things going on, so I took the easy way out and just jammed on the brakes and stopped. Uh, his mates came up, uh, opened the door, took out the girl, took her away, um, broke her legs and raped her, opened the door on me and knocked me un uh, unconscious. Where were you living during this period? Uh, at this it was in Glebe, and the state government had wanted to put it through an expressway through some uh, a whole bunch of housing, including some ancient history. And from that, the lesson is obviously that while the other states may come cl close from time to time, New South Wales is still, even today, and I'm proud to say this, it is still the most corrupt and incompetent state in all of Australia. And they're keeping that proud record going through different... It doesn't matter which party is in power, they still keep that record going. And so the, the way they had tried to get this all to land cheaply was they bought a few houses in the pathway of the expressway at, at, at a regular price, and then took off the doors of the houses and left them open so the junkies would move in. So I got invited by a friend of mine who turned out was a junkie but I didn't know to squat with him because it was very nice of him and then looking after me then um, gradually people moved on and uh, I ended up having, uh, after pushing a few people out, having the house to myself. And I was being selfish there. And accidentally making a political statement with it. Um, yeah. Did you try to legalise your living situation there? 
Yeah, I wrote a letter. It was owned by the Government Department of Roads, whatever it was. So I wrote a letter to them saying, hi, look, I'm living here. I'd like to pay rent on this house. Um, And they did a very clever thing. They wrote uh, two letters to me back. And the first letter was, Dear Mr. Krzynski, um, thanking you. we thank you for your writing your letter uh, from 78 Dargan Street in Glebe. Um, the tree I planted is still out the front now. It's a huge liquid amber. Thank you for um, your letter uh, of such and such a date. Uh, we'll respond in the next letter. And the next letter came the next day and it said, this is to acknowledge that we've already sent you a letter. So their reply was... We're not telling you anything. We're not committing to anything, but we know that you're there. And they did nothing about it. Were you otherwise living without electricity? No. uh, What you need is rubber gloves. Explain. Well, um, the the wires come into the house, and um, I didn't have enough money to get a sparky electrician to fix it for me. So I worked out the power board, how it worked, and I just um, put on some rubber gloves and went and rewired it up. Um, Did you have to climb up a telegraph pole? Uh, no, this was just the switchboard on the house. So the switchboard on the house had the wires disconnected, so the, but they were still broken off, so I had to splice into them and then join them and then bring them down in a safe way. And um, I, I remember on one occasion seeing uh, the electrical supply readers who would come to your house in those days and actually read the meter, and they'd walk past and they'd go, they'd, they'd look at each other and shake their heads uh, and then keep on going at my wiring. But I thought it was pretty neat, and it was waterproof and everything. Uh, You alluded briefly to rock and roll. Uh, Somewhere in here you end up making one of Australia's first music videos. Yeah, I did a bunch of them. I was one of the very first people. I won't mention the name of the band in case they sue me. Oh, they might. But I ended up making a video for a band. Uh, They then became fabulously wealthy somewhere else in the world, but we won't mention their name. Uh, And so I um, supplied the film uh, at my own cost and then went along and shot the whole thing and then mixed, then processed it at my own cost and then edited it and egg matched it and then added in the soundtrack and uh, they were in town and uh, I went to their hotel room, the Seville townhouse and they were drinking champagne and smoking best quality Buddha sticks and they didn't invite me to either and and with the video they said, oh yeah, look, uh, thanks for the film, uh, here's 40 bucks, uh, F off. Uh, and I thought, hang on, the film cost me more than that, and at that moment I decided that perhaps um, there'd be no future in music videos. What a big mistake that was I made. <laughs> Is this part of what prompted you to get back into science? No, um, getting a job and getting money. So then um, I went with my parents on a holiday, um, which I'd never done before, to New Caledonia. So I was reading the newspaper, which is all we had, uh, the only English-language newspaper which we'd carried all the way from Australia. And in the advertisement section, that's how desperate it was, it mentioned that you could do a master's degree in biomedical engineering. So I went along, and it was Fred Hollows, and he wanted somebody to design and uh, build a machinery, a machine to pick up electrical signals off the human retina. Well, I had basic physics, and I had a, I'd also done a bit of car mechanicing along the way, and I knew a bit of electrics, and um, so then I drifted down that pathway and ended up busy building the machine for him. Tell me about meeting Fred Hollers. Can I ask you about that? Well, he was um, a rough diamond, which is meant to use the F word a lot. Uh, and on one occasion, I remember we'd been talking about various things. Um, and he said, hey, Carl, you married yet? And I said, no, I'm only 20-something. You know, and he said, well, here's some bloody advice for you. Firstly, have a bunch of kids with them. And if they turn out all right, bloody get married. You got that? Yes, Fred. <laughs> 
<laughs> Dr. Carl, let's play uh, a third track. What do you want to choose in tribute to this period of your life? Well, that was a very hippie, still loud music uh, phase. So one of the early greatest songs would have to be Jimi Hendrix, who specifically asked that he would be the last performer at Woodstock and everybody was leaving and he starts off his set with oh I'm just jamming around here you can live if you want to and he does the most blistering rendition of the United States National Anthem it's fantastic Jimi Hendrix there with a little bit of musical history, some 20th century history, his rendition of Star Spangled Banner, the uh, US national anthem performed at Woodstock but brought today into FBI Radio and out of the box by science communicator Dr. Carl. Dr. Carl, what is the U.S. Information Agency Distinguished Guests International Visitors Program? Ah, so I was just sitting in my office at the University of Sydney as the um, newly appointed Julia Sumner Miller Fellow. And um, this woman knocked on her door and said, Hi, is Dr. Carl here? I said, Yeah, I'm Carl. Come in, have a cup of tea. Uh, Call me Carl. And she said, I'm here to make you an offer. I said, I love offers. And she said, we'd like you to accept the offer of becoming a distinguished international foreign visitor to the United States. 
I said, that's great. Do you have milk or that? And then she said, yeah. And then um, what does it mean? She said, well, we'll give you a one-month all-expenses-paid trip to see anything you want in the United States. And I said, I want to go to Norad. And she said, no. And I said, you promised. And she said, oh. And I said, I'll hold my breath and turn blue. And eventually they relented and let me go to Norad. Norad? So, what is Norad? Norad. Oh, my God. Uh, it's in one of the James Bond movies. Um, the Americans were very paranoid at one stage about the United, the, the Soviet Union dropping nuclear weapons on them. So they went to the middle of America to a place called Colorado. South of Colorado is Colorado Springs. And outside of Colorado Springs is a mountain called Cheyenne Mountain. They hollowed it out. That's the best way to avoid nuclear weapons. Just hollow out a giant mountain, remove millions of tonnes of rock, and then put in a couple of dozen buildings, mount them all on giant springs, as big as you are, the diameter of you. And so if a nuclear bomb goes off, they just rock around. And that's your nerve centre which will withstand a nuclear attack. And I'd seen it in one of the James Bond movies, and I wanted to go there. And so I managed to get in there and actually see it. It was amazing. And what happens there? What, what happens during your trip to NORAD? Well, wherever I was, everybody was playing video games on their computer monitors. What were those video games? Um, anything they wanted. And I said, how come they're all playing video games? And they said, because you're here and you can't see what they're doing. So it was. So you, get, you you head out of Colorado Springs and you start heading for NORAD and it's not that well signposted. And then the six-lane highway, three plus three, drops down to two plus two, then one plus one. And then you come around the corner and then there's a tank in the middle of the road with a barrel pointing at you. Because the tank outmassed me, I stopped. Uh, and then they say park over here and then you park over there and then you go through all this stuff. You got a camera with you? Yes. That was interesting. I, I said, can I take a camera with me? And I said, yeah, just tell us that you're going to take a camera. I said, I'm going to take a camera. Okay. Um, and uh, what are you going to do? I'm going to buy a new camera. Yeah, okay, where are you going to buy it? Uh, down City Hi-Fi or something. And so I turned up there with the camera and he said, take the receipt with you when you're there with the camera. And so I took the receipt and they checked it against the photocopy of the receipt they had. It means that they'd gone to the trouble of finding the shop that I said I was going to get the camera from and going to that shop and then getting the receipt and photocopying it and then sending it all the way from Australia to the middle of America. So this is the level of security that you're dealing with? They're not mucking around, man. There was one guy who was always following me around Mm. and um, as I went through, and I realised I could never get a good look at him because he was always behind me. And so I started to play a little game. So I'd turn around to face him and he'd always move around because he was slightly behind me. And at the end of our, I, I stopped doing because I didn't want to make his life hard. But I just want to prove that he was doing that. He was always out of my field of view. And at the end of the time, I said, look, it's been great meeting you, but how come you were never in my field of view? He said, yeah, I saw that. He said, well, um, oh, he was some sort of Marine guy. He said, I was a uh, black belt champion of this and boxing champion of that. And should we go into an alert, uh, my job was to disarm you. And if you were to re- resist, stop you from resisting. And what would that involve? Um, well, he'd just say, go to this room, go follow me to go right here, right now. And if I didn't, uh, if, if I didn't go to the holding cell, then he'd beat me up until I was unconscious and then drag me there. Nothing personal, just business. No, very hospitable from our good oh, American they were. friends. They were. They were lovely. They gave me um, uh, instant coffee as well, which is very high for that time and them. Did any uh, defence threats come to the fore while you were there? The Soviets... The Russians, 
um, launched a tense test missile. And so a few lights went off. So there's different levels. There's def- different DEFCONs. And there's sub-levels of that. And they went to a higher level. And luckily, I'd got really friendly with the guy who was taking me around because he was an engineer and I was an engineer. And instead of having to take around some bored, psychopathic politician or somebody who didn't care about the beauty of their place, here was somebody saying, wow, you did that. Wow, that's clever. But how do you solve this problem? He'd say, oh, we did that. I said, wow, that's clever. So we started talking engineering to each other. And so when the lower level alarm went off, the guy said, "Uh, we've got to go now. He said, no, look, I'd take authority for him. Just, Just, he can stay here. And what so it wasn't a full level alert. There were certain things I wasn't allowed to look at or go in the room of, and he would go in and just check in and come back out. And the Soviets, were, or the Russians, were launching a test missile, and I and, and they were tracking it. They were tracking the Russians launching a missile from this mountain in the middle of America, from a whole bunch of satellites, like the stuff you see on TV. They were doing that way back then. Mm. Is, it, is there a moment of panic? They were all professionals. And I, 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 then finally he, he went through the whole thing and I said, did you expect this? Um, and he said, yes, we knew it was going to happen. So that means that they had a spy on the ground in that place in Russia. Also, you know, but, uh, the only reason I talk about it now is that it wouldn't involve a threat to the life of that spy because it's... A few decades enough after that. Enough years have passed. Enough years have passed and things have moved on. So that, that was really interesting, knowing their level of awareness of, of, of what they could do. And in fact, uh, you might have read just on the weekend that, the, you, know, the, you know how every phone call in Australia since 2007 has been recorded, every single voice call, you knew that? I didn't. No, and everything you uh, – so I taught my kids that at an early age. Never say, we are expecting a big cocaine of nuclear weapons and cocaine and ice this weekend. No, no, just speaking euphemisms, right, for God's sakes. So everything you say is recorded, and everything you do on the internet has been recorded since 2007. Just on the weekend, the NSA, which records everything – and which is receiving the data in a five-way swing around with the five eyes, the, the NSA in America has uh, officially asked Congress, because uh, they're a black agency and very little comes out, but they've asked this openly, can we please stop recording data of everybody in the whole world? We've got too much of it. It's too expensive and we can't analyse it, even with our artificial intelligences. And so we've got this weird situation where, on one hand, we're told that we shouldn't worry about being surveilled or checked or snooped on all the time because if you've done nothing wrong, why would you want to keep it hidden? But here's this hidden secret agency that wants to uh, do hidden surveillance on us uh, and they don't want us to know about it and now they tell us that they have been doing it and who, who can you trust? Like, What's your take on the argument of if you're not doing anything wrong, why would you want to keep it a secret? There comes a point where we would definitely need to balance our um, right to personal liberties and not to be watched. But in saying that, uh, I'm a big fan of the state. Yeah, I like the state uh, because I like private enterprise because it's efficient, but I like the state because it can be can be honest. But we've now got the states turning into a plutocracy. And we've also got the situation where 56% of millennials don't mind that they're being snooped on if it helps their next buying experience get better. But then the answer to all of that surveillance thing is, it's not illegal to have sex, so would you be happy with your parents having their favourite sexual position on the front page of every newspaper? 
you, to quote my daughter. Mm. Well, I guess if we're talking about media disseminating private information, <laughs> that's probably a different question to the ah. government gathering it for mm. intelligence purposes. But, I mean, perhaps the problem is more with democracy rather than with uh, governments overreaching. We don't have a democracy. We've got a plutocracy because now the governments of the world are looking after the interests of the wealthy people. So you have the situation in the United States where since from 1979 to 2013, which is about a third of a century, real wages have gone up by 7%, whereas housing and education and medical care has gone up by a lot more. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting children. And um, you're saying there's a correlation between that and uh, government overreach in terms of intelligence gathering from their own populations? Government is no longer an agent of the people, but an agent of big business in some cases. Is it possible that if we restored the relationship between the government and the people, then um, we'd be more willing for them to gather our information for intelligence purposes or for the ostensible and often touted reason of keeping us safe? Ah, let me take it differently. Uh, It'll only change when you run for politics or you support somebody, Dr Joey, who runs for politics because Chairman Mao said power grows out of the barrel of a gun, but in Australia and many of the so-called Western countries, plutocracies, it grows out of the politics. Mm. And if you have that mental attitude of, I don't want to go into politics then you've got nothing to complain about because you had your chance. So support somebody who runs for politics who has your prejudices or just run for politics yourself. Uh, on that, maybe let's uh, go to uh, <laughs> another song. So, Dr. Kyle, what can we play in tribute to global intelligence and the US-led world order? Well, I think probably this song, Twitter and a Monkey Man by Moses Wiggins, which is a better version of that song by the Travelling Wilburys, who claimed they were a rock and roll band, you know, with Bob Dylan and George Harrison and, and Roy Orbison. And how can it be possibly a rock and roll band when one of their members dies of natural causes? <laughs> I mean, come on, mate. Uh, but uh, Moses does a better job. And the reason I'm choosing this song is that all the way through you'll hear references to Americana stuff, the big house on the hill, the hot road, all that sort of stuff, Bruce Springsteen references woven into it by Bob Dylan who helped write it. And so you'll get a real vibe of midtown America back there. Secret calls to the monkey man for 
said every one of you's a liar If you don't surrender now It's gonna go down to the wire
Moses Wiggins there on FBI Radio, covering Twitter and the Monkey Man, uh, originally by the Travelling Wilburys, brought in today to our studio here out of the box. Dr. Carl is our guest for just a few moments longer. Dr. Carl, let's finish with a love story. How did you first meet your wife, Mary? Uh, I was a mature age student. She was 19 years old in first year medicine. Um, and we met and I thought, wow, she is remarkable. So in first year medicine, you've got a whole bunch of people, about 250 of them. Uh, and they're all pretty good at what they do in their own way. But she was just very, very different and better. Not Well, better it turns out for me, let's it, it, put it that way, to put moral values on it. And she just shone like a diamond. Um, I fell in love with her. Were you a fan of the institution of marriage? No, because I grew up in that whole, we're going to get wiped out in a nuclear war. How can you possibly bring children into a world like this, which some people are doing now with regard to global warming. And I'm saying, be optimistic, we can make it better. You just have to go into politics. So it took me quite a while and a fairly traumatic event before finally I rang her up and I said, hi, honey, uh, I'm in a cheap hotel room in um, Southeast Asia injecting opiates into this young redheaded woman. Um, where should I inject them into? Because the trouble is, I, I seem to remember that I shouldn't inject them into the buttocks, but I can't remember why because I'm a bit tired. Where should I inject buttocks, uh, opium into the opiates into her? And by the way, will you marry me? Then the line went dead. <laughs> the happy ending for her, for her, and for me too, because eventually Mary and I got married, and so we decided to get married. That was hard too. Because we decided to get married as a scientific metaphor, we being me and her. What is a marriage as a scientific metaphor? Well, I figured that the best way to do that would be to get married uh, as, as a love story uh, inside the Arctic Circle on the longest day of the year when the sun didn't set, so that in the same way that the sun would not set on the, on the land, then the love would not set on our marriage. So we got into Norway and on the longest day of the year got married. Um, it was a little bit hard because we were trying to work out how to get a marriage certificate with the Norwegian people. And finally, finally, somebody said, do you want the AMD 22 or the AMD 21? And I said, I don't know. I can't tell the difference between them. He said, ah, you, Carl, are you a man or are you a woman? And I said, I'm a man. And this other person, this Mary, is this a man or a woman? That's a woman. Ah, you want the AMD 22. You want the heterosexual wedding, not the homosexual wedding, because at that time, uh, Norway was one of the few places in the world where gay people could get married. And he couldn't work out why we were trying to get married in Norway if we weren't gay. So many confusions. This has been absolutely wild. Dr. Carl, what can we play to conclude this episode of Out of the Box? A, go a glorious love song, Layla, uh, and it's by uh, Derek and the Dominoes. And I remember I was in New Guinea and I heard this song coming out of a record shop, you know, the Black Records, and I thought, my God, that's amazing. The guitar playing on this and the words. And so who's Derek and the Dominoes? And it turned out it was actually um, Eric Clapton, having come out of his heroin experience, trying to get back into music and saying, I'm not going to do it under the name of Eric Clapton because people will just buy it. I want to prove that I'm that good anyway. So he made up a fake name and called himself Derek and the Dominoes and it sold very well because the playing was so good. Then later he said, yeah, okay, I'm Derek. With that, I'd like to, as always, from my heart, thank you to my producers, Bree Jones and Nicole DiPaolo and Dr. Carl. Thank you very much for being Thank my guest on Out of the Box today. Thank you. I hope I didn't take you on too many detours. <laughs> Out of the Box.
This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.